Well, I suppose that I knew that this day would come, but I never actually thought that it would come. Ever since I was a kid, the dentist told me that if I did not start flossing more, that my teeth were eventually going to break into pieces and fall out. Dentists. But what middle school, what middle school kid with braces really flosses his teeth? I mean, honestly. Every six months, I'd go to the dentist and it was the same story. I would even try to hide it. I would brush my teeth a lot before I went to the dentist, like four or five times that day, thinking that would make up for my past transgressions. But they were on to me. I wasn't fooling anyone. That poor hygienist used all sorts of tools on me. I hated going to the dentist. I remember that when I was old enough to make my own appointments or not make my own appointments, I would do anything to find excuses not to go. Until one day, I was sitting on the couch, watching a television show, eating my popcorn, and I felt it crack and then crunch. A piece of my tooth broke off, and it took me a few minutes to find it in between the popcorn, and it was trouble, right? Still, I didn't want to go to the dentist. I thought, I'll give it a few days, see how it does. I'm not kidding. There was no major pain, only minor inconvenience, and so eventually I got used to it. A few weeks, maybe months went by like this until I woke up in the middle of the night with intense pain. It was throbbing. So I did what any man would do. I tried to ignore it and medicate it. I started adding goodies powder to my coffee. (laughs) And it didn't work. It was time to go to the dentist. So I called and they booked me as an emergency appointment and they were willing to see me right away. But when I sat down in the chair, I knew my day of reckoning had come. And come it did. Over the next six weeks, I had seven dentist appointments to get that tooth repaired, a root canal, a buildup, a crown, and then apparently another tooth needed some some work. It was not fun. And it really wasn't fun when they sent me that bill, or those bills, all of those bills. My dentist was right. The day of reckoning would one day come for me. And come it did. I'm proud to say that I have flossed literally every single day since that fateful day. But what went wrong with my dental hygiene habits? Was I not warned? Did my parents not provide for me toothpaste, toothbrush, and floss? Did did my dentist, did my hygienists, did they not tell me? Did I lack information I mean, did I not know how to take care of my teeth? Did I lack knowledge? I think what is so sad is that I genuinely believed my childhood dentist when he told me that if I did not start flossing, my teeth would fall out. I really believed him. I believed that if I did not start flossing, something bad was going to happen. But that was way off in the future. It was some other time, a problem I'd have to deal with some other day. That day was never going to be today. And then that day came. I'd gone so many months and years, even after my popcorn incident, without having any major pain or problems that I irrationally convinced myself that my teeth were fine. I mean, who cares about flossing? I knew that there would be a day of reckoning, but I never thought that it would actually come. But it did come, and once it came, there was nothing that I could do about it. 
Dear friends, you must know that a day of reckoning awaits each one of us. Most of us have heard that before. Most of us probably believe it. But let me remind you again tonight. Do you remember Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27? It is appointed for man once to die and then comes judgment. You and I have probably lived all or most of our mature lives hearing and maybe even believing that verse. But so far, it's not true. Nathan, would you try to fix my sound? You tinker with that maybe. You'll ignore him. So far, it's, it's not true. None of us have yet died. None of us have yet faced judgment. And there can be a great temptation for us to kind of be lulled to sleep. I mean, think about it. When is the last time that you had any serious thought about the coming judgment? I mean, perhaps we can even be lured into assuming that it may never come. Good. Tonight we come to the end of the chapter of this part of the life of Israel. Here at the end of chapter 31, or here in 31, we come to the end of 1 Samuel, and we finally are coming to the end of the life of King Saul. The writer of Samuel has been slowly getting us ready for this moment ever since chapter 28, but really, in fact, ever since chapter 15. The book has been leading all roads to this tragic day where Saul would die. Tonight, we conclude our series through 1 Samuel, but remember, 1 and 2 Samuel, that is not a natural division. Apparently, that many chapters did not fit well in a scroll and a variety of other reasons, right? So they divided uh, the book of Samuel into two parts, Um, and so we're actually stopping in the middle of the book. But But it's not a careless division, it's an appropriate division, which makes for a good stopping place, because as we'll see tonight, the death of Saul brings about a major change in the life of the nation of Israel. So let's go ahead and before we read the text, let's go ahead and consider the main idea that we'll see in this text tonight. You can be listening for it as I read it. Tonight we'll be reminded that there awaits for every one of us a day of reckoning. Sin, when fully grown, always leads to death. And unless we repent, That is what awaits us all. Let's look now at 1 Samuel 31 and let's read this text together. Starting in verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab, and and Malchishua, and the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword, and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it, And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day together. Verse 7, And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. 
And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his, Saul's armor, in the temple of Ashtoreth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bashan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard that the Philistines, what what they had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came back to Jabesh and burned him there. And they took their bones and buried them under the uh, the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we come appealing to you that you would work tonight. Lord, there is little that we can do on our strength alone. And so we call out for you to work by your spirit. As we read and as we preach and as we hear and as we consider and as we apply your word, work by your spirit to impart it to us. Give us understanding. Give us insight. Give us wisdom. Convict us where we are sinning and comfort us where we are hurting. And draw attention to Christ. So, Father, for all that to take place, I pray that my words would fall to the ground, blow away, and let them be forgotten by all. Just let your word settle and let it remain and bear fruit in our hearts, we pray. We ask this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, the author of Samuel has been slow playing the final days in the life of Saul. He's really been doing it over the last four chapters, but it really feels like he's been doing it longer. And God's timing in all this seems surprising to us as well. I mean, he's already very early in the book, halfway through. We saw that God had already doomed Saul's kingship. He'd even doomed Saul's whole family. And it leaves us wondering. It leaves the reader wondering, what is God waiting for? You know that when you read the text, you need to be asking questions. That's how you engage with it. So we might wonder, what in the world is God waiting for? I'm not sure how many years have passed since that fateful day back in chapter 15, or back in February for us or whatever. But Saul has lived with the promise that his kingship would fail and that God would give his throne to someone else, to someone better. And we're not sure what God has been waiting on, but David, I'm sure, is more curious than all of us. Because not only was David waiting for this, but he was suffering, tremendously so. It's a reminder to us that God's timing is usually a mystery to us. Perhaps God was giving Saul more time to repent. That would not be surprising to us. We've seen kings, even kings more wicked than Saul, repent before the day of judgment. Do you remember Manasseh? The child-sacrificing king, the son of King Hezekiah, he repented of his sins and called out for salvation ahead in Second Chronicles chapter 33. But we don't see any such response from Saul. In spite of his exposure to God's word through the prophet Samuel, 
in spite of God's miraculous work in his life, in spite of being filled with the Spirit to perform wondrous deeds on behalf of Israel, we never see Saul repent. You remember that in chapters 28 through 31, the author's flip-flopping back and forth between David and Saul. They'll talk about David doing one thing and then Saul doing another thing at the same time. And that's what's been happening. And at this very moment, we've been reading, if you look back at chapter 30, David is off heroically defeating the Amalekites. But Israel, back home, is on the brink of war. And they have been with the Philistines for several chapters. If you remember, this is the occasion that tempted Saul's desperate dabbling in the satanic underworld. Back when he went to visit the witch of Endor. But in chapter 31, the author brings us right into the middle of the action. It's like we were dropped into a battle that was already taking place. And he cuts straight to the point. Verse 1, we see Israel is being routed. They're being routed. And the effects are devastating. One of the most basic principles in reading the Bible is students of the Bible will look for, look for words that are repeated. And this will help you perhaps sometimes know the emphasis of a particular text. This is especially helpful in Old Testament narrative. And I think the verbs in this passage tell the story for us quite well. The verb for to flee was used three times. To fall, four times. To pierce, two times. To die, four times. Words like stripped, cut off, nailed, wounded, all were used. It's a scene of gore. It's a war scene. One that includes suicide and mutilation and decapitation. We must not move past these words too quickly. The author felt it was important to include them. And so they have theological significance to us as readers of God's word. They show us God said judgment would come and judgment came. God said judgment would come and come it did. Well, I suppose this brings us to the first of four lessons that I'd like to point out tonight. I've already hinted at this quite specifically. But point number one, when God says a day of judgment will come, it will come come. Saul was given dozens of opportunities. He was given numerous warnings. Saul, Samuel even pleaded with Saul back in chapter 15, why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And then he goes on to say he's pleading with him to obey. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. But Saul rejected the word of the Lord. If we went back to chapter 15, we could see how Samuel said that this was tantamount to idolatry. That rejecting God's law is an act of idolatry. In chapter 15, verse 23, he says, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. You might want to make note of that, chapter 15, verse 23. That was even before Saul went to call Samuel up from the dead. And Samuel tells him, rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. For reminds us, God eventually destroys all of those who are opposed to his kingdom. God promised Samuel multiple times that this judgment was coming. 
Back in chapter 15 and verse 28, God declared to Samuel, I have rejected you from being king. You have rejected me, therefore I have rejected you. And then again in chapter 28, verse 19, God spoke, strangely through the dead prophet Samuel, what he had said in his lifetime. Verse, verse 19 says, Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also without into the hand, oh, it will give Israel into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. Of course, Samuel is speaking to us from the grave somehow. Brothers and sisters, God keeps his word. You can't hear it enough, can you? I can't. God keeps his word. God has made many, many promises. And he's made promises of threat. And he's made promises of blessing. And God is just as inclined to keep his promise of threat as he is to keep his promise of blessing. Have you ever noticed that? Saul's death, including the death of his whole household, really, is the fulfillment of God's word. And all of God's words are good. We're inclined not to think so. Some of God's words are hard. Is there anything in your life that God's calling you to do to obey him right now that is hard? Oh man, obedience can be hard, can it? But God's words are all good. Does God not also have threats that we should heed? We're so quick to talk so frequently about his words of comfort and promise and blessing, but are his words of threat not essential to us as well? We've already heard it is appointed for man one day to die and then comes judgment. Or do you remember Jesus' words, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Or what about in the parable of the unforgiving servant? When he's being speaking of thrown into prison, he, he says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brothers from your heart. Do you heed the warnings of God as much as you heed the promises of God? We cannot pick and choose. You cannot cover up the passages you don't like and run only to Jeremiah 29 11. We have to heed God's warnings. God always keeps his word, and whether that be a word of reward or a word of judgment. And we must remember the lesson that David was so painfully being taught. That though judgment is delayed, it usually is delayed, it will eventually arrive. We've spoken often of the importance of leaving room for God's wrath. In your relationships where people are sinning against you and are unrepentant, is this not a helpful thing for us to learn? Though judgment is delayed, it will eventually arrive. All the way back in chapter 2. Hannah's song at the beginning of this great book set the tone for the whole book. And one of the key verses from her song was in verse 10, and it says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces. Against them will he thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Which of those words are not still true? Dear friends, we must take heed. God is a God of stunning sacrificial love. And he is also a God of horrifying, awful wrath. He is both. And he cannot be one without the other. Let me tonight be sure to declare to each one who is here 
that there is indeed a God in heaven who demands submission. Not partial submission, but total submission. And he is loving and he is good, but he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And in every one of our sins, each one of us has declared ourselves to be his adversary. And he will judge us. So I must tell you, you and I have no other hope but Jesus. You and I must fling ourselves upon Christ and be broken upon that great cornerstone or else we will be crushed by him. Those are the only two options. All of those who come to Jesus must leave behind their sin. Genuine faith cannot exist without repentance. Which is why we must all, who profess faith in Christ, we must all be living a lifestyle of repentance. There can be no sin that we are comfortable with. No sin that we learn to live with. All who live in Christ live a life of repentance. You cannot walk with God and cherish your sin. For in the end, you might prove yourself to be a goat, not a sheep. A tear, not wheat. A Saul, not a David. So let me ask you, when is the time to heed this warning? Is it not now? I mean, just as there was a day for reckoning, a day of reckoning for Saul, so too there will be a day of reckoning for each one of us. So let us not delay to prepare, for you may not have time. The day of the Lord, the scriptures say, will come like a thief in the night. Now is the time to turn to Christ. Now is the time to forsake your sin. Even if you already walk with Christ, why not forsake that lingering sin now? Well, let there not be any Saul's among us and among our fellowship. For those who make their lives among the people of God, let there not be any among us who, though they outwardly go through all the motions, inwardly have hearts of stone. Let Saul's headless body, strung up on a city wall somewhere, remind us. Let it be a gory reminder to us of what happens to the unrepentant enemies of Yahweh. Come, come now to Jesus. Come and be saved. The whole theme of Saul's life is that he refused to repent. He went through some of the motions of religion, didn't he? But he refused to repent. He refused to submit to any other king but King Saul. Saul would have no other ruler. Saul would have no God. Saul was Saul's God. Saul only answered to Saul. And all throughout his life, he proved that. Even his final act in life, suicide. Even his final act was an act of rebellion against God, the author of life. Even his final act was breaking one of the Ten Commandments, murdering himself. But what's even more troubling about the final moments of Saul's life are not just what he did, but what he did not do. This man, this one who was anointed by God, and though he had the prophet Samuel and thus had the word of God, even though in his final days we see total desperation, so much so that he would go see the witch of Endor, so much so that he would plead for someone to kill him, so much so that he would even fall upon his own sword, we do not see enough desperation that he would call out to God. 
He was willing to try everything else, but would not call out to the Lord. And that omission revealed the true nature of his heart. Friends, our prayerlessness says much about the condition of our heart. And it says much about the nature of our faith. In Saul, we see no desperation. Or we see desperation, but we see no final prayers. No desperate cry for help. No pleas for mercy. Proving that in the end, Saul died without faith and without a relationship with God. Because faith, especially desperate faith, cries out for help. But let's continue on to the next point in this text. Because you'll notice that not only, it's not only Saul who dies, but his sons die as well. And we're saddened to see Jonathan's name listed among those who were killed in action. And I think it's from this that we can glean a second major lesson from this sad text. And that would be this. Make it your aim to be faithful in death. Make it your aim to be faithful in death. The great Presbyterian commentator and and professor of Old Testament, Ralph Davis, he offers an obituary that captures the big picture, and I can't improve upon it, so I'll read this portion. He says, David remained a true friend, or sorry, Jonathan remained a true friend to David and a faithful son of Saul. He surrendered his kingdom to David. He sacrificed his life for Saul. In this hopeless fiasco, Jonathan was nowhere else but in the place Yahweh had assigned him, at the side of his father. For most of the book, our pity has been with David. He's been the victim often. But Jonathan got really a raw end of this deal, didn't he? He too suffered. Why? Because of the sin of his father. Yet for Jonathan, this was not an excuse to sit down and cry. He wasn't one to blame his circumstances, and he wasn't one to blame his family life. Jonathan's life, in spite of his circumstances, was marked by faithfulness. No matter where God called him, no matter how unfair it was, no matter who God took from him, Jonathan lived a life of faith. It's easy to see Jonathan's life or Jonathan's death as a tragedy. But what's tragic about the death of a faithful man? I remember hearing a sermon that John Piper preached famously back in the 90s. I listened to this while mowing a lawn. I remember it clearly. It was, don't waste your life. In the sermon, he famously has told the story of two sets of people. One was a couple who retired down in Punta Guda, Florida, where they spent their days playing golf and collecting shells. Another couple was two elderly women from his church. One was just under 80 and the other was well past 80, who upon retirement moved to Cameroon, Africa, where they poured out their life to make Jesus known among the poor and among the sick and the unreached. And those two women were killed in a car accident while serving on the field. And I'll never forget hearing John Piper say these words, and I'm quoting now. Is this a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision, spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Christ. 
two decades after almost all their American counterparts have retired to throw their lives away on trifles in Florida or in New Mexico. No, that is not a tragedy. This is a glory. Jonathan didn't die as a glorious king, and he didn't die as a martyr or as a missionary, but he did die being faithful. Which reminds us that a life that is worthy of of commendation, a life that is worthy of being declared to be faithful, it doesn't depend on circumstances. It doesn't depend on having a good marriage. It doesn't depend on being in an ideal ministry situation. It doesn't depend on a certain education. It doesn't depend on anything but faith. Just be faithful. We all have different circumstances, and they change all throughout our lives. So our job is to figure out, how is God calling me to be faithful today? How is God calling me to obey today? And then obey. And then die faithful. There's nothing tragic about the death of a faithful one as he's ushered home to glory. There's a third lesson from this text. And that's the shame of idolatry. The shame of idolatry. I want to, again, revisit this theme of God's judgment, which we have already touched upon. And perhaps I could say this. It might seem strange that we would sing about the first Noel, and then I'd preach a sermon on judgment. But remember this, that as we celebrate Christmas, what are we celebrating? We're celebrating that Christ came into the world, that he would be judged, so that you and I would not be judged. This is a Christmas sermon, right? Because Christmas is a celebration of the incarnation of God. And the incarnation of God is why we get the gospel. So let's just sing joy to the world. But we return again to the judgment of God because as we come to the end of the chapter, we see that Saul's body has been captured. His head has been removed and his armor has been removed. And then in verse 9, we read that Philistine messengers carried good news to the house of their idols and to the people. Saul's armor is placed in the temple of a local god as a declaration. This was culturally a declaration that the gods of the Philistines were greater than the gods of Israel. That's what happened in defeat. Saul's head was probably taken somewhere else in in the region. And then the corpses of Saul and his sons were spiked to a wall as a testimony to the people. I think this deserves some careful reflection. We can see here how God puts an end to our idols. How God puts an end to our idols. Saul represents the idolatry of Israel. Do you remember when Israel demanded a king like the nations? They were rejecting, God said, they were rejecting the rule of the one true God. They instead wanted someone to go out and fight their battles. We want a king that will go out and fight our battles instead of you, God. It's idolatry. God declared it as idolatry as we have already read. We understand, right, that idolatry is when, whenever we put anything in place of God. And this is, the alway, this is always the end of our idols. Just like Dagon, earlier in Samuel, lost his head, 
so too did the idol king of Israel, Saul, lose his head. But it's not only the idols that are destroyed, but also all of those who worship them as we saw before. The people of Israel, the idolaters, ended up either being slaughtered or fleeing from their homes. Think about what that would be like. There in verse 7, we read that after seeing the defeat, they abandoned their cities and fled. And then the Philistines came and lived in their houses, in their cities. I mean, that is total defeat. This too is the end of all our idols. This is, this is the same for the man who abandons his family to engage in sexual pleasure. Or for the woman who lives her life to sculpt the perfect body. Or to decorate the perfect home. Or to have the perfect children. You see, all worship requires sacrifice. And the sacrifice that our idols demand is total control over our lives. That's what all the idols in our life are working towards. Total control. And eventually, Saul. Suicide. Death. In Jeremiah chapter 2, the prophet is proclaiming to the people of Israel the consequences of their idolatry. You can flip there if you'd like. The whole chapter, I read this chapter this morning in my devotions, and it's a beautiful, a beautiful, helpful chapter for us. Let me read just two verses here from verse 4. The prophet says, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, listen to this, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? You hear that? What, what can you... what? What can some other God satisfy that God can't? (laughs) This is God speaking. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? Did Did they not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us into the wilderness, into a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land. I could go on. But here in Jeremiah 2, we learn of the nature of idolatry from the prophet Jeremiah. Did you hear there in verse 5? What happens to those who go after worthless things? They become worthless. They went after worthlessness and became worthless. That is the end of idolatry. When you pursue worthless things, you will become like whatever you're pursuing. We become like what we worship, as one author has famously said. We become like what we worship. Whether it's fly fishing, some craft project, UT football or your dream house. We become like whatever we worship and all of our idols are empty. They can't even sweat. Unable to satisfy, unable to fulfill, unable to comfort. Should be no surprise to us when our idols lead us totally unsatisfied. It could be why you feel depressed. Because you're seeking satisfaction in something that is not God. This could be why your marriage is struggling. Because you're looking for satisfaction in your wife. And your wife is not God. And your husband is not God. Only God is God. Only Yahweh is God. 
All of our idols will always leave us feeling empty. Maybe not right away, but eventually. And they may even demand our heads, our very lives. But you see, what's so tragic about this scene is not simply Saul or Israel's idolatry, as tragic as that is, but also the shame that they brought upon the Lord. You see, when the good news of the Philistines traveled around the land, it was the wrong good news, wasn't it? Did you see that in the text? The good news of the Philistines? That was not the gospel. That's the wrong gospel. Saul's head and Saul's armor and their mutilated bodies were a testimony to all the world of what the Philistines considered to be good news. The gods of Philistine are greater than the gods of Israel. That's what this meant. Saul's head, Saul's armor, Saul's headless body were a testimony. This is how God takes care of his people. This is God's anointed. This is what you get for following the God of Israel. The good news that the Philistines proclaimed was that their idols won. That's what it was. That their idols are actually better than the gods of Israel. But is that true? No. Why did this happen? Because of sin. The name of Yahweh was mocked and shamed, not because Yahweh is weak, but because of the idolatry of Israel, his people. Brothers and sisters, our sin shames God's name. Perhaps one of the reasons that these heroic men made this what was a 20 or 22 mile journey in the middle of the night to pull down the headless bodies of Saul, the, the headless body of Saul and his sons off the walls of Beth Shahan is that they knew that those were a d- disgrace to the God of Israel. Brothers and sisters, we must remember that the world is watching us. We must remember that when we choose the idolatrous pleasures of the world over the eternal pleasures of God, that we are saying the gods of the world are better. And we bring shame upon the name of the Lord. Sure, there is forgiveness. Praise God for his forgiveness. But the damage is done to the name of God. And his name is blasphemed among the nations because of us. While we love, what we love tells the world what we value. And what we value tells the world what we worship. Our idolatry shames the name of God. So should we not say with Hannah, back at the beginning of the the book, should we not say that there is no one holy like the Lord and there is no rock besides our God, that there is none besides Him? And so ends 1 Samuel with a stark warning of the dangers of sin and the dangers of idolatry and the reality of apostasy. But the book does not end without hope. Because even though the Philistines are spreading this false gospel, Israel's king is dead. They didn't know. Israel's king might be dead, but Israel's God is not dead. God is not dead, and he's working. And he's already selected his king. And even though things may seem hopeless, 
hasn't Samuel, this book, at least taught us that there is so much more, that when God is involved, there is so much more than what meets the eye? There's so much more than what man can see? Because David is next in line to the throne. And he's going to be different. He is God's chosen man, and for him, things will be different. Not that he's not a sinner, but that he is in covenant with God. And Jonathan, the son of Saul, he lost the throne because of the sins of his father. But that won't be the case for the son of David. The son of David, his name is not Jonathan, but his name is Jesus. And not only will he not lose the throne because of the sins of his father, but he will actually conquer sin itself. And he will redeem all of Israel from her sin and from her idolatry. Jesus, the true, better son of David, will gather for himself a people. And he himself will be their king. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. That is why we can say, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Let's live according to the reality of this invisible kingdom. Forsaking all of our idols and worshiping Yahweh, the one true God. And let's do it with happiness that we might die faithfully and die well. Let's close in prayer. Father, we are eager to see the day where all of this is fulfilled in our sight. We know that Christ has become man, that he became man and dwelt among us, that he might, fulfill, he might redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We know that he died and suffered and that he rose again and that he is now seated at the right hand of God. And Father, we're reminded that one day he will indeed come to judge the living and the dead. So let us live accordingly, trusting only in Jesus and living in light of his gifted righteousness. Help us in this, we pray. And we ask this in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.